We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Chloe Qatar. Chloe is a PhD in history graduate at the University of Cambridge. We discuss emotions accompanying completion of a PhD in Lebanese history, overlapping with the October 17 uprising, and continued economic collapse and political paralysis. Our conversation includes re-examining the birth pangs of Greater Lebanon, comparing foundational aspects of state structure with later geopolitical conflict that spilled into Lebanon, and questions about the evolution and emotions of words including sectarianism and federalism. Chloe and I also talked briefly about her dissertation and the wider role of intelligentsia during conflict. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. And foremost, Mabruk. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Qatar. Not yet, but Not yet? yeah. Because there's the viva, so there's the, the jury, right? The oral examination. And then hopefully I'll be a doctor. Yeah. So let's hang up and do the episode in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Re- regardless, it's a big accomplishment. Yeah. Thank you very much. And the reason I'm saying this from my side is I survived about a year of a PhD program, ended up downgrading to a master's, but I know the type of discipline and commitment needed to finish something like a PhD. So I'm in awe of anyone that can pull it off. Thank you so much. But but even aside from the dissertation that you're, you're prolific, I mean, you are always producing content. So when it's not the PhD, you're, you're online, you're on Instagram, you're feeding us knowledge. So I think you're probably the most uh, productive person I know. And Thank I'm, you, that's I'm, very sweet. <laughs> no, but I'm honored to have met you in person. I know that your time was limited. It was the crunch period right before yeah. you're finishing the, P- yeah, and you made yeah, time for me. it was a month me. before, yeah. A month before. And I think that meeting also let me learn a few things about you. In addition to the PhD, I know it's a gentleman never asks a woman her age, but you volunteered that information and it lines up with me. You just turned 30. Yeah. Yes. I just turned 40. <laughs> so happy <we're>... birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Happy birthday to you. Thank and, you. And, you know, I want to start off in this sort of lighthearted way. And although it's a serious subject, PhD is a serious issue in itself, but maybe it's easier to talk about these things than getting into Lebanon right now. Just to start off, what does it feel like to accomplish something that big? And what does it feel like to turn 30? And this is a very superficial question. I promise the questions will get deeper later. I just want to say it from my side. I'm feeling older and I'm 40. I'm starting to feel a bit like a dinosaur at times. And then conversations next to me, I don't relate to right away. And I sort of feel like I'm aging. And I know we're 10 years apart, but just curious. You finished something huge. 
you turn 30, do you feel older? <laughs> and do you feel wiser? Is there some perspective now? Or is it really just all the same to you since you're mid-20s and now you're 30? It all feels the same. No, I think uh, it's funny how you said that this was the kind of lighter version of the interview, although I, I don't feel very light. <laughs> because, <laughs> but like, no, I agree. Of course, I feel like I've aged and I know that it's a milestone to um, to submit the PhD and to do one. But I think the fact that these two events collided together, right, the fact that I submitted the PhD and turned 30 at the same time, it was such two kind of huge, uh, uh, um, huge events. It just felt like, yeah, I accomplished something, but at the same time, it required so much sacrifice, so much time, so much work, and I, and it was so tiring. I felt I aged through the process, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. P people usually celebrate their 30th birthday doing something else. I was like trying to finish the deadline like two, three days before. And so, yeah, I mean, it's good and it's bad at the same time, really. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine the pressure, the, the days leading up to the yeah. submission. And add to that, that this is not a distant story. You're not doing research on a subject that's unrelated to you. If anything, it's as personal as it comes. I mean, you're focusing on a chapter of Lebanon's civil war, yeah. the first seven years, the intelligentsia in those years. Yeah. Know that these, this is not our generation per se, but still it's the Lebanese story. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think I was able to finish a PhD. Mm. Uh, I was admonished several times for being too reflexive, for mm. being too involved in the story. And that mm. helped me change the PhD topic later and downgrade to a master's. But I'm wondering on your side, does that add to the aging process? Not the numbers, not that, not that you're turning 30, that doesn't change. More that, does it make you perhaps more exhausted that this subject and the wider story it lines up with the current predicament we're in, that you're seeing, in a way, you're seeing history evolve and your focus is on the same story. Does it, does it take its toll? Of course. And I'm, so what I wanted to say is that obviously just working on the civil war in general is going to be exhausting, right? Because it's such a emotional, it's such a loaded topic, right? It caused so much destruction, so much death, so much uh, uh, exile. So in itself, it's just... Uh, really a personal quest and you should as, mu as much as you can shield yourself in the process. Mm. But I think what was the hardest was doing this research in post-2019 Lebanon. I think that was, I think, the most disruptive aspect of this research is that I had to continually reflect on this previous period of Lebanese history, which is mm. kind of uh, um, uh, one of the maybe the most major crisis we've ever had right with the great famine of Mount Lebanon and now obviously what we've been living for the past two years and I was and I was forced to do so because after 2019 I was approaching my deadline right and 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 so it's, it's always like this the first year of the PhD is what I call the honeymoon period you're very happy <laughs> with your subject and you're very ambitious I'm going to produce such an excellent piece of scholarly work I'm going to uh, um, kind of innovate the field and then you're very excited and then at the end is the time where you start being less ambitious and like you know this is what I have I'm going to try to do with what I have and all of this phase coincided with the Thaura and then with the explosion and then with the wave of, pen, uh, of the COVID-19 which I caught in, in winter and so this is what was really really hard for me is that I, I needed to focus on this period 
of history that was very difficult in itself while living, while, while my living experience was this other cycle of crisis that, that we encounter in the past two, two years. So I found myself experiencing those huge events and automatically drawing parallels with what was happening now and what was happening uh, back then. And each time trying to, as an individual in Lebanon, trying to heal from those events, right? So uh, the Thawra came in 2019, and this was to me was kind of the key anti-civil war moment. It was this moment where my generation came and rejected right. the wartime legacies. It was, it was, it was breathtaking. And then it, it took all of my attention for three, four months because you, you can't just chill yourself from, from such an event. And then I tried slowly to build up again my concentration, right? And shift away back my attention from 2019 to the 70s and the 80s. And then the Beirut port explosion happened. And for two months, I was just like, like a vegetable. I was just numb. I couldn't do anything else, right? I, I just yeah, abandoned the PhD and just tried to, to live in the moment. And, and, and then, yeah, tried to, to like... I don't know, experience the pain, be with other, right? These are very collective experiences and the PhD is such a solitary experience. Yes. So it's very violent for me and, and, and anyone doing this to, to try to exile yourself, yourself from these collective experience of pain and, and, and yeah, and, and rage and try to, to go back to an older period of, 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 of time and try to focus on this. And so, yeah, the past year and a half, it, it was just, very hard to focus on the PhD itself. And this is what I say that, that scholars or journalists or, or, or experts from the Middle East or from the third world, they, they experience their research and their, and their production differently than scholars from the first world, right? So academia in the UK or in, in the West, they only had to deal with the pandemic in the past year and a half. We had to deal with layered stratas of crisis and conflicts like always occurring again and we had to produce with all of this a piece of scholarly work and 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 this is where you see that that being from Lebanon and being from the Middle East whatever you do right is a continuous cycle of of, of indiv individual and collective violence and trying to achieve an individual victory in this context is extremely hard whether a PhD or something else it's impressive the way you said it resonates with me yeah. It's, it's impressive for anyone to accomplish that kind of a task or such a big, to finish something that's that important in the middle yeah. of this extremely difficult stretch of Thank time. You. Yeah. I, I think that uh, it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot yeah. of discipline. And, yeah. and I think uh, you, you, you made it happen. But you yeah. know, you said something earlier and I'll admit, I divorced my dissertation during our honeymoon year. So I kind of, I let her go <laughs> after year one, which is I guess the best year to do it. Mm. But I'm getting from you, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that rather than changing the question altogether, which happens often in PhD, that even in the second year, people sometimes reframe their question or they, or they shift altogether. Rather than doing that, that you found a way to express your concerns, not through the dissertation, but on Instagram. Yeah. And that, in a, in a way, that curiosity that could have been another dissertation on its own, you channeled that into yeah. an accessible way and sometimes it's light at times it's it's sort of in-depth research but you did it on your terms without the supervisor yeah. Yeah. without the committee so is that where your instagram page comes from that it's rather than shifting the phd you just sort of did two things at the same time you kept your question going yeah. 
and you let 2019 sort of yeah. take you on a roller coaster, except online on, on social media. Yeah. That's very true. So I always, because um, before 2019, I, I never had a very strong social media presence. It wasn't something I really thought of. It just happened a bit organically because of the movement. But then obviously I, I, re I really put a lot of work and effort in this page, right? Because I just saw that it, it has some kind of at least a partial role to play. And, and I think what you say is, is true is that I see in this uh, something that I can do in academia or in my PhD, which is uh, marry the historian and me, right? The, the person who likes uh, looking back at the past and drawing parallel between what's, what was happening back then and happening today, but also the activist in me, right? So it, it's it's very short texts that are inspired by research, by history, by, by books I've read, but also where I can add my non-academic take on things, right? Because yes. in academia, whatever you want to write, you have to really follow a very strict framework of analysis and of writing and, and it's very sometimes it's, it's it weighs on you and, and it's 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 more of a collective of a peer-reviewed process whereas my instagram is like where i could do write whatever i wanted to say although it was i tried as much as possible to anchor it in historical knowledge and in veracity as much as possible but it was my own take on the things it, it, it had my own spin uh on on this and i think Something that you say is that is true is that because I had this outlet, because I had this platform where I could grapple and 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 manage the press, then I could kind of uh, I, when I went back to the academic work, I could try only to focus on the past because I was afraid at some point that because I was so involved in what was happening now that this was really impact and influence how I was looking back at the 70s and 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 I tried to to limit this right because otherwise my writing would have been very pessimistic or or, or very <laughs> even more right because then you see how uh, we are now in another phase of crisis and and I should try to look at the 70s without knowing what was happening what, what, what will happen now right? right and so writing on instagram was this outlet where i could yeah just put all of these feelings there and stay very rational in the other um field but it's a very loose question but i'm really curious what you think about the utility of social media versus the pain and agony of producing a dissertation and the reason i'm starting it this way is because i i, I know your instagram page i follow it I know many people that follow your Instagram sort of production, if you will, uh, your posts, and you just finished tens of thousands of words on an important chapter of Lebanon's civil war with a focus on a certain specific issue. My bet is that this audience will never read that material, that they will yeah. know you only for those posts or primarily for those posts and maybe some some podcast episodes yeah. here and there and some TV appearances if that comes to be. But mostly that it's limited attention span on a yeah. very important subject. Yeah. So do you see that this is sort of just an inevitable situation that you have to find a way to make research accessible on social media, whether it's the way you're doing it or even if it takes a dissertation, which maybe not many people will look at, that it has to lend itself as well to social media if people are going to look at it at some point. I'm sorry that it's not a very well-framed question, but it's more that I, I sense social media as a fait accompli and then people are turning yeah. there for history. Yeah. So what, whatever you can say on, on that on that issue. That, that's very true. And this is why my page 
I mean, emerged and, and was able to, to strive at least for some months, right? Because mm. I mean, in the last months, I completely like, yeah, turned and concentrated my focus on academia. But obviously the fact that it worked, it's because there's a wider audience that has interest in history, that has interest in historical knowledge in understanding the past kind of uh, uh, outside family or, or sectarian environments, right? Mm. Mm. And so this proves that this specific audience needs historical knowledge tailored to its, I don't know, its way of thinking, its way of cons of consuming information. So obviously social media has a role to play in disseminating historical knowledge or any kind of scholarly knowledge. And obviously this goes beyond my page or any other pages. This is a huge debate in the field, right? How much really those scholars who spend years and years in the archives writing a huge and complex piece of scholarly work, how much it is possible to filter their work and right. put it on social media. It's a debate, right? And you'll find people against it. You, you, you find people saying that social media is not the place. And because it is limited and it's formatted in a specific way, it will never give all the nuances, all the layered aspects that, that history as a field is comprised of, right? Mm -hmm. and, and obviously that's not the point. I think if we can use social media to at least, to at least kind of create a small interest in history, right? Then we should do it. And then a fraction of this audience will probably, as you said, a very small fraction of this audience will probably go and look for further information and might, for instance, buy my book when it's out there. And that's going to be maybe 5%, but that's already gained. That's already something that's that's in addition to what we already have, right? And right. yeah, so this so, is so how way, I look at it. So it's complementary at best, but it doesn't, doesn't replace... The hard can. work necessary, right? Right. It can, and you see this, and you see this, for instance, on on posts that go viral on social media, right? Posts that try to 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 kind of reflect or um, explain one very complex phenomena, right? And because Instagram or Twitter are all very short uh, yeah. uh, um, format, you can only write in specific number of words or share one or two picture, you can never completely explain the whole phenomena. So it will never replace it, but it's a tool like, and, and like any other tool, we can use it to further interest in, in, in historical knowledge and production, and especially to fight, I don't know, key myths, you can use it this way. You know, and I apologize. It's a bit choppy. I don't know if it's disconnecting from my side as well, yeah. but yeah. And now we're back. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Most of the sentence made it made its way through. But you know, the attention span yeah. needed to at least appreciate history and then sort of dissect it. And social media, those are these are opposing issues yeah. altogether. Yeah. And you just said it in a way that, of course, I mean, a tweet an Instagram post, and many people just won't spend more than five seconds at times. And then you need the hard work necessary for history. And then you need patience to actually yeah. go back in time, at least try to understand, not that history repeats itself, that obviously doesn't happen, more just in terms of learning the history to begin with. And like you said, dismissing myth, throwing away these sort of uh, falsehoods, that's what a historian can do and, and, and help. And I want to go back in time with you. And it's a chapter of history that I'm not fluent with, but uh, I'd like your opinion on the birth pangs of greater Lebanon, the early 20th century, and the buildup to that stretch of time, late Ottoman history, 
the early years of French rule, and all the pain and agony that went with the foundation of the borders that we know today. So it's really everything that led up to 1920. And when I go back in time, and I, I try to read as much as I can on the famine, on the Mutasadafiya years, on, on the massacres in the mountains, all that, I, I sense that there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of torment, a lot of suffering, and uh, nothing that points in the direction of a state being born for that matter, or, or things like social pact issues, the foundations for citizenship, citizenry, and an era of prosperity. None of that seems to be on the horizon yet. Some things do happen later in the 20th century that don't necessarily match to that immense pain and suffering earlier. And again, saying it up front, it's clear history does not repeat itself. There's no sort of 15 year markers or 30 year markers. I always get this question. I always get this question. <laughs> you know, I'll just say this. I, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I spent about 15 years giving a history tour in Beirut called Walk Beirut. Okay. Yeah. So that was, for me, it was the same question all the time. You're, you're yeah. an actual historian. I'm yeah. a storyteller at best, but I, even I, I mean, I made it a point to dismiss that. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like, uh, oh, in 15 years, you can bet on the future again. And the, no, that I doesn't happen, whether years. it's in Lebanon or anywhere. Even if 15 years does happen regularly in Lebanon, that's not a <laughs> recipe for anything. Yeah. But that because we are going through something immensely difficult at the moment, and I hope I'm asking this in, a, in an eloquent way, do you, do you get the feeling that perhaps this does not mean doom and gloom permanently? only because we have had experiences in this country's history, pre-modern Lebanon and early modern Lebanese history, where things were difficult, things were terrible, and then things did move in a different direction and perhaps quickly at times. So I'll start here. Hmm. The, just the birth pangs of the country and whether or not we can look to that chapter of history and offering anything when it comes to what we're going through now, that perhaps we're in the middle of a very, very difficult phase, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the end of Lebanon or the death of the country or permanent state failure that we have to adjust ourselves to, that there could be something positive on the horizon, but it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of the mess. Okay, so I think, yeah, I think it's completely fair to think this way, right? Because again, as I mean, as I was saying earlier, and then you, you said it again, when we, talk, what it, when we think of deep crisis in Lebanon, we think of the civil war, but we also think of the great famine, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in Mount Lebanon in, in, during the Second World War. And right after this, yeah, Le Greater Lebanon was created. And so obviously this is seen uh, usually, especially in those grand narratives as kind of the, the final point or the fulfilling of Lebanese destiny, right? That after all of these pains and all of these tragedies, after 400 years of Ottoman rule, finally the nation was born, as you said, like out of, of an immense tragedy. Um, I think this is a grand narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Because it also depends on what is the, the starting point from which you look back at these events, right? So it, it's, it's all a bit relative, but because obviously if you stand in 1920 and then you look back at what was happening five years ago, you would you'd be very happy that the French are here, right? Because finally, exactly. Ottoman yeah. rule is done, etc. And so, and this is why the population back then welcomed the, the Allied with open arm because mm -hmm. anything that would have ended the crisis was was wel was welcomed and, and with the grand welcoming, right? But then if you kind of 
go forward in like 20 or 30 years later, and then you look back at what, at what was the mandate, then you remember that the mandate was just colonialism, right? It's just very simply uh, a state of colonialism where a French power um, was very hard to challenge. And, and this is where this, this period, right? This foundational period between the, the, the 1920s and the 1940s, this is where you see, you start seeing uh, uh, some of the features of Lebanese politics emerging, mm -hmm. right? And the ones that are going to then back then strengthen and solidify and become what they are today. So even if you look, for instance, at the, the independence, right, which is this other chapter of the grand narrative. So we've removed the French and we've come together as this uh, intra-religious uh, uh, um, uh, national pact or etc. Then you remember as well that in uh, that the mandate of Shar al-Khuri was kind of the first mandate of corruption. This is where you start seeing nepotism and clientelism uh, emerging in, in very uh, clear ways, right? In very straightforward ways. And so it really depends on how you look at things, right? Because there's bad and there's bad and good in, in all of these faces, right? You, you could always find uh, a good side or a bad side to an event. So. Uh, I understand this need to, to look back in order to find some hope. And obviously the crisis we are in right now is not going to be an eternal event. Not, nothing is eternal, right? There's going to be uh, an, a way out of the crisis. No one can say how long it's going to take and how it's going to happen. But obviously after such a big low, some, there's going to be something to look forward to. But then the question is, depending on how this happens, either this will somehow give us other kinds of problems in the future, mm -hmm. depending on how we deal with the crisis and how we go, we, 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 we decide to, to, to deal with it. Or as you say, we could look back at these successive uh, uh, crisis and the successive series of conflict and try to learn from uh, those trends that have dominated Lebanese politics and, and the logic of the Lebanese state. So when someone asked me if history repeats itself, I say not really, because the point is that there are broader trends, right, across, for instance, Lebanese history that you can see is that the fragile state, the fact that power has been given more to communities and to Zouama, and the fact that corruption and nepotism, justice has never been, been served. And as long as those trends are not dealt with, mm -hmm. then all of these phenomena will always occur and recur in different ways, right, in different embodiments. So the point is not to say that history repeats itself, it's just to identify once and for all what is kind of these root causes that always caused crisis in Lebanon. If evidently, each context has a specific external kind of circumstances. I mean, I mean, we wouldn't have greater Lebanon if the Ottoman Empire hadn't fallen in, in at the end, of, right? So there's always big circumstances happening. So. My answer, my answer to this question is it's really going to de depend on how we deal with the crisis today. If we build good premises today, then yes, th there, there is something to look forward to. If we deal with it with like, like we dealt with all previous crises, right, in a hurry or just in, in, uh, just in hoping to fight consensus, then we're creating problems for decades ahead. I love the way you framed this. And I think only a historian who just finished a PhD could do that. So I'll give you credit there. That was that was well done. 
there's there's two threads I want to dissect though, and I like that you you're offering right from the get go. You're offering that the early years of Lebanese independence are not rosy. You're describing Peshad Khoury in a way that's it's more accurate than yeah. the folklore that surrounds that man. Yeah. You're talking about trends and that we need to dissect them and that there's interests at play all the time and history clearly does not repeat itself, but you can look at those trends for what they are at any given point. Yeah. I'd like to compare two trends. They're different, different chapters, but I'm curious if they can at least reflect better on where we are right now. And the first trend and you said it earlier, those 20, 25 years of French mandatory rule compared to the last half century, last 50 years of state erosion, state decay, and then sort of Lebanon becoming a battlefield for regional wars, primarily from 1970 onwards. Do those, in your opinion at least, do they help explain where we are right now? Meaning that the French mandate or how you described it earlier, a, yeah. a colonial sort of enterprise did not really address fundamental problems enough for there to be a stable country that emerges, that improves over time rather than trips on itself and collapses. And the issue of political violence, political violence that expressed itself in the civil war, it expresses itself even with the ammonium nitrate blast the kind of political violence that a country should not deal with, especially 30 years after a civil war. So is there anything there in terms of being able to merge two things together? And I sense there's always a divergence, an opinion that the state is born incorrectly, and that's one theme. It's a, it's a flawed state from 1920. And until you go back to 1920, you can't fix it. And the other thread, which is really 1970s is the end of the Lebanon that we experience that we sometimes hold on to earlier generations primarily. And then until you go back to those issues, you can't fix anything. And I sense that that's where there's a split. It's almost um, best expressed maybe as uh, a flawed state and then a battered state. And I don't, I don't know if maybe, maybe both are true. Maybe both are correct. And they lend themselves together to where we are now. So do you, do you see it that way or do you see it differently? That that's not the right way to start to at least explain how we got to where we are today. Pulling in from the fundamental flaws and the geopolitical quagmire, or perhaps focusing on one of the two or ignoring them altogether. I'm really curious from your side as a historian, if you're able to see it that way, or if that's just a, if that's not even a useful way to look at it. No, I mean, all of these questions are completely fair and they're good questions, right? So I think you're, I'm gonna start with your the first part of your question, which was about how can we relate those two epoch of, of Lebanese history, right? The mandates and then, then later the half, the second half of the 20th century. So I think this question is kind of, uh, is is one that you can ask for the whole Middle East, right? What are the legacies? <laughs> yeah. So, no, no, I mean, I'm just talking <laughs> this way, but very quickly, and then yeah. I'll go with, so what are the legacies of colonialism, European colonialism especially, and but you can also think of it also as Ottoman legacies of, of, of colonialism. But the point is that the mandate, which was French uh, um, 
colonialism obviously uh, uh, gave us some legacies. It's impossible to move into another period of, of history and not to look at what we've inherited, right, in terms of yeah. habits, of political and legal structures, and then not see how they impacted what came um, uh, later on. So, so the point of the mandates, right, because they were different from other types of colonies, right, it was a very specific uh, type of mission, right, right. that this, yes. yeah. Uh, the DSDN, uh, the Society of Nations, had given to France to oversee kind of Syria and Lebanon uh, towards independence. The point was to educate educate those uh, elites and those countries into democratic processes, right? And so they could then rule themselves and be ready for good governance. Obviously, did, did this not happen? Because especially the French, in contrast to the British, had a very hands-on policy on mandates, yes, right? So right. they were very invasive. Uh, they, they, they were kind of... Uh, um, um, overseeing everything. And, and so there was very little, indeed, democratic education, but also what the French and the British did also in Palestine and elsewhere is that they reinforced sectarian networks and that they reinforced sectarian uh, um, leaderships. And we see this with the Maronites in Lebanon yeah. uh, under the French. So a lot of this, obviously, a lot of the, what we're dealing right now have been has been created during the French mandates. Right. And all of this was done to strengthen French control over over those mandates because it was a divide to conquer. Right. Divide those communities among themselves so that you can conquer better and you can control better the Levant or, or the region. So obviously those strengthen sectarian uh, uh, communities that have a political identity, they're not that that aren't just. Uh, uh, political, I'm sorry, that aren't just social or cultural communities that, that have been given a political identity, that have been given the right to uh, contribute uh, to mm. central power. That's a legacy, of, obviously, of the Mutasarrifia, but especially strengthened by uh, the French mandate. So there's a legacy here. Right. But then obviously it's very easy to say, oh, colonialism is the bad phenomenon and we're perfect. That's 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 the easy way to, to look at it. Right. right? But we shouldn't really, we shouldn't uh, underestimate what these very old structural legacies, how they, 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 they unfolded over the years, right? Because these legacies, they transform and, they, and then, then they are used by local actors to further their own interests. And this is where you see how they're, they're, they evolved and et cetera. And this is what happens after after the um, uh, the independence, right? But then you have so many other things that happen, and so it, it's a very it's a, it's a big complex. I mean, it's a complex phenomena here that we're talking about. It's how once the sectarian state uh, um, has been established, how it's been used by uh, a generation of politicians, right? And and how regional conjectures or regional uh, uh, environments have also furthered uh, um, these politics. But um, going back to, I think, to the second part of the question. And sorry, I'll just interject here because yeah. I, I don't think I, yeah. I should add one thing, is whether or not those years, a primarily French mandatory rule, are the reasons why Lebanon in inherited a lot of the regional wars that we ultimately paid a price for. That is there a in other words, is it a structural reason that the state implodes? Or is it something that's beyond the French mandate? That it's any country facing these kinds of dilemma 
will eventually fall apart and Lebanon fell apart. Because I'm, I'm trying to pick at what exactly is the biggest stumbling block right now to the chance that we both witnessed, mm-hmm. which is reform. And I think reform is often, it's misunderstood. It's not just about some corruption or some cleanup here and there or some quotas that need to go. I think reform is really going back to the earliest years of the Lebanese enterprise, except that we're talking about it a hundred years after the birth of modern Lebanon. And I always ask myself if, if there was no geopolitical quagmire that could tear this country apart, that whether or not Lebanon would have reformed its political system, that that was sort of a natural trajectory, except violence derailed it. So I hope, I hope that yeah. better asks the question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good way to look at it. Thinking of Lebanon, I mean, if it was not in the Middle East, like taking it as it is and putting it, I don't know, like maybe in Europe or some, somewhere else and, and ask if it would have happened the same way, right? Um, I think the civil war is a good example to kind of think of these dynamics, right? Uh, I think the explosive uh, um, um context in which Lebanon can, or, or the explosive predicaments in which Lebanon always finds itself in, is bound to be a mix of all of these factors, right? It, it, I, th- I think it's because all of these factors collide. This is why we always end up with such layered and big crisis. It's a, mm. it's a bit of both, right? It's because we've, we are in the middle of a region that's always on fire. And because our, um, because the Lebanese state very simply follows this logic of the central state or central power always being weakened and diminished um, um, in favor of sectarian parties or sectarian communities. This logic automatically makes Lebanon and the Lebanese state more fragile and more exposed to those external factors or, mm. or so, so you can see uh, during the Lebanese civil war I mean forget the French mandates right so the creation of the state of Israel such an event was bound to create waves of impact and of consequences across the Middle East so automatically when Palestinian refugees came to Lebanon there was bound to be Israeli ret- retaliation whether Lebanon was a dictator or a fragile democracy, right? The point that Lebanon was a fragile democracy, the fact that uh, it was undermined so much, that executive power was undermined so much made it more explosive. So, so it's a bit of both. And then that comes, that explains why, for instance, the argument if, that you find in the scholarship on the, on the Lebanese civil war, uh, whereas the war would, would wouldn't have happened without the Palestinian factor is always debated, mm. right? Yeah. If there wasn't this very strong Palestinian armed presence, would the Lebanese civil war would happen? But then if you look at what was happening at the debates, at the ideologies, at, at the texts that were emerging prior to 70s, you also see there's a very strong internal strife, right? Political yes. powers, internal political powers were not at all in sync. They were ready to fight, right? And so they've used this Palestinian factor, their, their weapons to further the conflict. And so it, it's really both. It's, it's, it's a mix of both. Would it be fair to say, I, I, I mean, I guess the bigger question is one of sovereignty and agency. But I, but in terms of limiting the discussion to those years, the in 1950s and 1960s, and I, it's exactly the way you said that there was bound to be some conflict with Israel, and it happened in the 1970s in particular. And in 1982, you have an invasion of Beirut, 
and the story sort of gets worse from there. But in the 1950s and 60s, and you're right, absolutely, there was internal strife. 1,500 Lebanese were killed in 1958 with a brief civil war that yeah. no one really talks about. Yeah. 1958, the country does not collapse into a 15-year civil war. It degenerates into a maybe 8 to 12-week crisis yeah. that turns violent, it did not collapse for all the reasons that we know. That includes the Marines landing in Beirut yep. and, and so on and so forth. 1967, Lebanon does not take part in that regional war. Yep. If anything, Lebanon opts out. Yeah. That that war does end up hitting Lebanon in a different way, indirectly, and then by the 1970s, we're the front line. That's the story. Yep. So that, in other words, the 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 tools needed to shield this very delicate experiment, which was flawed to begin with, which is born out of European mandatory rule, which brings about old Ottoman ways of governing with it, it legitimizes perhaps the uglier form of sectarianism that we're still talking about. Can I interrupt here? Yeah, of course, because please. Something was flawed, right? We see this regime as flawed after a hundred years of experiments. But back then, the sectarian regime, whether in French lawmakers' eyes or even among Lebanese elites, was thought as the most advanced product. Oh, of absolutely. Yes. It allowed these yeah. various groups to coexist and, and manage their their right, their affairs independently, but also cohesively. So it's also in terms of what political ideologies or models were in vogue back then, right? That that's one thing. And and the thing is that because when we say it's flawed today, uh, obviously we are, we are talking about our period because we've seen the consequences of what it is. But you also need to understand that it's very hard to put this judgment on history because this is not how they've seen it. And and obviously these people did so not in an evil or malevolent way, right? They thought these were, this was the most intelligent way to govern Lebanon, right? So also there's bound to be error and experiences. So the point for us today is not look back at this period and also say, oh, this was flawed from the beginning. Uh, this was a bad decision. I don't think it, we could have escaped this, this outcome back then. The point for us today is to understand that it did not work, that we've tried it for 100 years and it failed. And so this is why we need to, but this is why, who said that we were we are going to find the ultimate formula now? It might not happen right now, but. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Okay. And I think uh, I was trying to offer a branch to the more extremist voices <laughs> coming out of the protest movement, okay. which is to blame everything on 1920. Okay. And, and trying to find some relationship to political violence mm. that did destroy Lebanon. And, and I'm what I guess the bigger story really is, is it a fundamental issue that we have to go back to? Or is it an issue of sovereignty and agency? Because I agree with you, consociational confederal democracy, whatever this thing is called, consensual agreement among communities, very advanced quota systems for a very small population, uh, minority complex from day one, sectarianism in places that it doesn't need to be always, but but it doesn't seem like that is the curse and that there are ways to address those issues. And my bet is that over time, these things would have happened and there have been hints of it. There's always been that discussion of the Senate that never happened. Yeah. 
there's always been ways of trying to allay sectarian fears yeah. and find better ways of governing. Yeah. But that it almost seems impossible to discount mm. the role of violence mm. and, and not this is not internal strife only. This is regional wars. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems to be the bigger issue at play when going back in time and trying to find, trying to learn from the past. Mm. That, that sectarianism in itself does not mm. really answer much. Because mm. I actually, I agree with you. People found ways of governing themselves 100 years ago that made sense. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a unique story. I mean, there are European countries that are more archaic than Lebanon that yeah. still govern themselves accordingly. So that's not, and I don't think of that as a curse necessarily or, or a flaw. I agree with you. But how, how, do we, how do we put violence into the story and how do we address it? Because it doesn't seem like that's discussed enough. It's always going back in time. As if, because Ba'abda is Maronite, everything is wrong. Or because the Sada is occupied by a Sunni and I, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Obviously, for instance, the economic crisis that we are in today, sectarianism doesn't account for it completely. doesn't explain how we got to this destruction of wealth. It's not just sectarianism. Let's be okay. It's many, it's financial choices, it's financial engineering, it's like colliding of economic and political establishment, it's aggressive neoliberalism. You'll always have layered causes for any kind of contextualized crisis, right? But coming back to violence, I agree that, yeah, we are in a region where there's a lot of cycles on and off of violence. And obviously we are in it. And so we have uh, more chances to be also kind of uh, suck in or to participate directly in those cycles of violences. Um, So uh, obviously I don't have a solution or an answer for this because that's kind of a a big topic to to kind of think of. But then one, one thing that you can think of here is that violence and, and especially access to weapon because that, that's an important thing, right? Yep. Because yeah, the, the likelihood of having violence is also increases when there's access to weapons, right? And that's when, when you talk about 1958 and why for it was a, it was a, a small civil war, but it, did, it never ended up like 75. One of the components is that there wasn't so much widespread access to weapons in Lebanese societies in the 50s right. as it was in 70s. So this is a point of access to weaponry, to, uh, to access to those tools that create violence. And because, mm-hmm. again, we come back to the fact that the Lebanese state has weak institution because the Lebanese army is a weak institution. I'm not meaning here officers or soldier. I mean, as an institution, it has right. very limited means mm-hmm. and it's not able to monopolize uh, 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 right, the access to violence. And obviously this goes, this is then disseminated and challenged by, by sprinter groups, militias, Hezbollah, I don't know, like the PLO back in the seventies, right? It's just, it's always the case. So I, I think we always come back to the same phenomena, even violence, right? Uh, um, we're always going to be in this, at least, at, le- at least until there's lasting peace in the Middle East, right? Uh, until we get there, uh, we're, we're always, uh, submitted to, to this probability of violence. And that's something that we, we need to acknowledge, right? Because we are so volatile, we're so impacted by, by what's happening uh, um, uh, around us. But then this also means that we need to look at our institutions, the fact that they're so weak 
and, and the fact that they can shield us not only from political violence, but from economic violence, because right. the destruction of wealth that we've witnessed today uh, is a form of economic violence, of social violence. It's, 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 a, it's a mass, uh, uh, the August 4th uh, explosion destroyed half of the city in 10 seconds. It took 15 years to destroy the whole country in, in this way. So what, what does it really mean violence? What kind of violence are we talking about? Is it only armed confrontation or is it also, right? So it's the question can be asked by so many other, other ways. And I think it, it always comes back to the fact that the state fails to protect its citizen on just so many fronts that we always gonna come back to this question. And independent of what's happening outside us because we can't control what's happening with our neighbors. We can't control what's happening inside our borders. But let me ask you a bigger question, the lack of state capability. And that's, I mean, we're mentioning the August 4 blast. Clearly, a war grade thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate in the heart of the city and, and one of the state's most sensitive sites, the port, Yet, we are host, at least, to a neighboring war, and most likely that is there for that reason, that this is not just an accidental yeah. Yeah. sort of shipping error, yeah. Yeah. but the state itself cannot address yeah. a, a broader war's uh, rippling, of, rippling effect on Lebanon in its own backyard, in its own port. Does the, the reasons for that, for that immense failure, do they, in your mind at least, do they go back to the early years of Lebanese, modern Lebanese history? So is that a byproduct of mistakes made, or, not, or maybe not mistakes, that these are things that were never addressed from mandatory rules or early independence? Or is this really just an issue of we're in the worst neighborhood possible for this kind of setup? That it does not sort of, there's no way to actually shield ourselves enough because I'm trying to get at what causes a state to reach this level of incompetence. And is it, a, is it an early decision made that is just, it is weak in its inception? Mm. Or is it a, an erosion, a gradual erosion from, from the 1970s in particular? Yeah, of course, there's this gradual erosion, right? But you also, mm. I mean, it, it's, it, it's fair and legitimate to think to, I mean, how far these problems go, go to. But I mean, also saying that, trying to, to look for the origins of the August 4 explosion into the French mandate, I think for me is a bit far-fetched. So I, I explained a bit, what are the structural legacies that we've inherited? But mm -hmm. I think for the, for the Beirut port explosion, as you said, it's the fact that Hezbollah is deeply involved in a regional war, so the Syrian civil war, but also to Afon, it, it, start, it literally stops at the, the, the management of the port. It just stops here. Mm -hmm. Why for so long? It's as simple as that, right? Even though Hezbollah smuggles daily, I don't know what kind of toxic and non-toxic material, right? It always happened, but the, like the, 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 the chance for this to transform into a mass violence event such as the August 4th uh, um, uh, explosion comes down to the mismanagement of the port authorities, right? Mm -hmm. Look back at the port authorities, how it was created at the end of the war. It's just 
you don't even understand how it works. It's not even clearly stated where is the central authority of the court and who is responsible for what. And even now, when you look at those very few documents that's been shared from the investigation, it's either the army or the port authorities or the government that try to yeah. escape responsibility or the judge, because it's not said clearly, right, how this should work. So again, mm -hmm. I'm coming again to this point of that the state is a weak state and, and, and this causes, and then obviously you have a thought if, right? I mean, it's easy to go back to the mandate, but the closer kind of cause con consequence uh, uh, period here is what happened at Taif, which completely diminished executive power in, in, right. in the Lebanese state, right? It's, it's not important, I mean, if it's Christian or Muslim, but the point is that executive power has been diminished. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, the trend with Taif is that this executive power is disseminated. So, so it makes it harder for you as a citizen to, to hold accountable someone, to say, this is the responsibility of this person, right? It, it's less clear who is uh, uh, responsible for those choices. So there are so many different layers here. And I just feel that going back to the mandate for this is a bit far-fetched, can very easily look at how the port works, right? And this is going to answer most of your question on why, how such an event can happen and what does it tell us about not only involvement in, in, other, in others' wars, but also how how yeah how governance how bad governance is in lebanon no but i appreciate that assessment because in a way you're actually honing in on how the country was patched back together yeah. in 1989 1990 yeah. and it's not done in a way that allows a state to reform yeah. and yeah. sort of pursue so let's its own be, let's be clear so the what we are living today is the legacies of the post-war period. So the economic crisis, the fact that Hezbollah has so much power, uh, the fact that the executive power is disseminated, all of consequence of how the war ended, the amnesty law, the fact that no one was judged. And so those wartime leadership just continued to prosper in the, in, in the peace in the peace era, the fact that this sectarianism and this uh, uh, political elite collided with the economic establishment to give us what the, the, the banking sector look, looked at today. Let's be clear. So be, we don't even need to go as far as the mandate. Just look at what happened in the 90s. And then you understand why we had this series of unfortunate events from 19, even before 19, um, 2019, right? Because it started a bit before. Yeah. But yeah. This is what everything exploded in this year and a half. So with that perspective in mind, yeah. and then looking back in time, you have an Arab awakening in the region. Lebanon is part of it, Nahda. There is a real awakening in terms of literature, politics, identity, and the like, language included. And then surrounding that enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, that renaissance in the region, you have pain, suffering, you have war, you have regional war, you have empires crumbling, famine, etc. In recent years, in the Lebanese experience and in the region, there's these uprisings trying at least to change the status quo, not always succeeding. At the Lebanese example, one that doesn't work yet, but there are still attempts, repeated attempts. And there isn't a readdressing at least of what it means to be Lebanese, even if these questions are not important, but they're asked trying to find some common destiny, even when common destiny is not necessary per se, but at least it's thought through now. And I think it's a, it's, it's a done deal that nobody wants to consider themselves anything but Lebanese today. Those questions are over. 
Those were real questions 100 years ago. No one really asks them seriously anymore. At the same time, you have, in many ways, a I think what could be, from my side, a misunderstanding of what sectarianism means. Because I sense that that word has become so pejorative today, and it almost unfairly is equated with secularism in a way that you have to pick between good and bad, between the, <laughs> the light yeah. and the dark. And the, I don't think these are the right ways to address that issue. And I, I live a secular life. I have, there's not one sectarian bone in me. I've looked and I can't find it. But I don't necessarily see that as the common goal of a country. And I think it's, it's too pejorative. I don't think it makes sense. Can you help unpack at least what sectarianism means today compared to what it meant 100 years ago? Because my understanding is that the word did not have a negative connotation up until recently, recently in Lebanese history, in yeah. modern Lebanese history. But you go back in time, and I think we hinted at it earlier, it may have been the, the ideal solution during times of crisis. This was a way to allay, allay fears rather than add to them. So is there any perspective on, on the word sectarianism? And does it fit in, in a sense, to awakening or the Arab Spring or the recent protests? And if it does, is it being used the wrong way? Okay, so, I mean, sectarianism, like any other concept, right? I mean, if you just think of the history of political language, of the history of political thought, right? Just trying to understand how a specific concept evolves over time and how its meaning evolves, as you said. What we mean today but by al-ta'ifiyi, which has very strong, bad connotation now, especially yes. after the war and after the Thawra, as you said, back then was not at all a, a, a bad thing because lots of uh, in Lebanese uh, intellectuals, Michel Shiha and others, right? I mean, you can challenge Michel Shiha and you can discuss uh, <laughs> as much as you want, but he wasn't the yeah. only one. There was many Lebanese intellectuals to put forward the ideal of a country uh, which was a mosaic of sects, right? Uh, um, um, work, yeah, so... Um, or even, even Kamal Salibi. I mean, I remember yeah. his... You know, I'm going to interject here for a moment just to yeah. say something, a side story. Yeah. I lived in one of his apartments in Ras Beirut, and I used to know Ooh. him. Actually, okay. his, his nephew was the landlord. Okay. So I used to sit with Kamal Salibi, mm -hmm. listening to him reflect... And yeah, he, he, he yeah. in a way, was a reminder that even if he shifted opinions later yeah. in life, yeah. that word is not toxic per se. Yeah. It's how we interpret it to yeah, become definitely. toxic. So sorry, I, I interrupted. Yeah, I mean, it's not only these big historians, but you have people like Elia Harik, who, who taught of Lebanon as... Um, federalism of communities, right? A place yeah. where they could live together somehow, right? right? And if you go even back earlier in the 20s and the 30s, I think this view of Lebanon as a federalism of sects or where sectarianism is this good is this good way of governance because it gives uh, all of these communities rights, political rights, and it, and it, uh, um, it blocks the attempt of any of this community to just uh, uh, challenged the liberty or the freedom of the other one, right? right. It was an act of balance, but this mm -hmm. also was somehow uh, in the 20s, in the 30s and the 40s, also in sync with uh, the discourse on human rights that was very strong back then. And especially right. of 
the rights of families and of minority groups because this was such this was very much in vogue after the World War II, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that we should protect specific communities that had cultural, religious, political particularities that these should not be again. Uh, 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 they should not experience again uh, uh, totalitarianism, any kind of, of nasty project, then international law should respect these communities or these sects or whatever. And you can you can find this this discourse not on, on not only in Lebanon, you can find it in India and in, in various parts of the world. And, and in Lebanon, you have intellectuals such as Charles Malik, who also yeah. defend this vision of, of Lebanon because he was so, so much involved in human rights. For him, right. Lebanon was this model where individual rights, but also rights of groups and families were protected and where everyone could live this kind of layered life as an individual, as a community, as a society, and their rights would be protected. So obviously this has completely changed. And this was in vogue back then for these specific reasons, but mm -hmm. today, I mean, we have to we have to we have to kind of acknowledge that it has really bad press, right? It's not anymore. Sectarianism is not in vogue anymore. Obviously, for <laughs> for, for specific reasons, right. but it's also it's also a, a question of zeitgeist of of language that are in vogue at specific moment. And today, yeah, sectarianism has very bad press, and I think it's it's going to to be this way for for a long time. But I agree that just having sectarianism and secularism kind of in a battle is just not very kind of like useful or informative because even secularism in the Arab world, it's, it has such a long kind of, there's so much scholarship around it. And you can see it from other Arab countries, right? Trying to grapple with, sector, with secularism and just ended up having a, a mixed version of it, right? Uh, um, it's very easy to say we, we want a secular state in Lebanon, but then to get there, it, it, it's, it's a bit more complicated. There, there's so much uh, uh, legal aspects involved, right? Uh, uh, maybe before getting to secularism, there's, a, there's, as you said, the question of how to deal with political sectarianism first. And, and, and abolishing one doesn't mean that you're going to get the other one, right? And vice exactly. versa. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I appreciate it. So it's not a binary choice. It's not one or the other. Lebanon has... Over time, there has been a way to at least address both. Yeah. And they don't, I mean, I don't think these words, I, I exactly how you said it, they, they evolve. And I think the emotions evolve with them. And it, yeah. it probably has the worst press ever right now. Yeah. I agree with that. But there's one word that increasingly has become, I think, toxic, maybe the right word, depending on which side you're on. That's federalism. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't want to say toxic because maybe that's not the right word to say. Let's say um, it's emotion. It's an increasingly emotional word. And I don't. I mean, you. I love your opinion on this. I I see hints of your opinions at times on Instagram, yeah. but this is maybe a more thorough way of examining yeah. what you think. When I hear the word federalism, I don't think of it as a neutral word. Yeah, and I think. Not. This is, it's not, okay. But I wonder if I'm biased by saying that because, and I don't necessarily care if that's the natural evolution of history where Lebanese are given that choice over time under peaceful circumstances, and they want to govern themselves that way on their own without pressure. Not Nothing you can, I, I cannot have an opinion on the course of, on, on the way history evolves in a country. If that is the natural conclusion to Lebanon, without violence, without without corruption, and without uh, insecurities, 
and so be it. But my sense of the word is that it's born out of violence. It's born out of insecurity. That it's not necessarily one of trying to find the best way forward. It's one of trying to partition and find exclusivity in a time where Lebanon is on the brink of extinction, the way we want it to govern. That it's almost a, it's a cop-out. It's, it's an easy way out. It's a shortcut. That may not be what, it, I mean, it's almost selling the country short on itself. And add to that, it feeds into those negative words that are always applied to Lebanon. Lebanon's a failed state. Lebanon is corrupt. Lebanon will never work. It's ungovernable, period. You might as well give up on it and join the federalist crowd. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm being too hard on this, but I'd love, I'd love your opinion. So, I mean, as, as we said, right, I mean, um, federalism has also bad press, but also, I mean, I mean, yeah, right, true, so, yes. so sectarianism, I mean, we rejected now, but at some point in time, it was kind of a favored, the favored um, uh, formula, okay, so if you want to be completely objective, like federalism is a concept that wasn't born in Lebanon, you have various federalist models that are successful, so obviously mm -hmm. we need to di divorce federalism from its Lebanese anchors to try to understand it as a political form of governance that that's worked elsewhere right so the point right. is not to demonize it like this it's worked elsewhere and it's one option so yeah. if I want to be completely objective I, I we never know how maybe decades or two later I don't know maybe it's going to uh, emerge as a possible solution depending on how those lawmakers how these politicians think of it right so hmm. this is just to be completely objective, but obviously, mm -hmm. as you as you said, and I, I've voiced this uh, before because I, I work on on intellectual uh, um, project and 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 discourses during the war, and so federalism in the Lebanese context is in was born in right wing circles, right? And although it wasn't really partitioned, so I think in my PhD I say that the people who were uh, the re really vouching for this. They, they weren't really partitionist people. They wanted to keep Lebanon as a whole, but they wanted to make sure that uh, we give the maximum autonomy possible to those communities and sects, yes. although the Lebanese constitution already recognized uh, much autonomy, right? We have uh, a tribunals, tribunals and, and, and religious courts in every sect, et cetera. So they wanted to push even further for, for, uh, for this independence between, between sects, right? So it's wrong to say that they were partitionists, but yes, they obviously wanted to reduce as much as possible the interaction between sects and, and which I described as mixophobia. They wanted to keep those sects apart as much as possible. Sorry, is that mi mixophobia? mixophobia? Yeah, so this is how I call it. So <laughs> the phobia of being mixed together. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and so this is how it was born, okay? And so this is why in Lebanon, as we said, as we said, quite prior right like um concept has have histories right they have legacies in lebanon it's right when comes and this is why i was trying to say and so people say that it, it's and they write it could evolve in a different way now yeah. right it could be yeah. uh, uh, maybe uh, uh captured by other groups and and and, and theorized in different way it's possible i don't know right but the point is that what history teach us when it comes to federalism in Lebanon is that it's always much more a discourse than, a, than a, a, a solid project. And what the Lebanese civil war teaches us is that even 
politicians such as Pierre Jemayel, Bashir Jemayel, who were just right-wing uh, uh, Christian uh, men, right, leaders, they've rejected federalism, or at least they've never done enough to make it happen, right? And it was, to me, yeah, this is why yeah. I say in my thesis, it was an intellectual project rather than a political project because it was pushed forward and really talked about by intellectuals and by intellectuals circles. And you see this today. Federalism in Lebanon is an ideology of crisis. It, 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 it takes life again when there's major crisis in the country, because as you say, it's a way out. People mistake it for a way out of, the, of, of a crisis. But it's really more about talking, people talking about it, right? And, and debating about it, because it's, it's a lot of passion. It's a lot of fire. It's a lot. But when it comes to practice, it, it never, it always fails the test. No one is going to, to, to put a federal uh, uh, proposal on the table and, and seriously discuss it. At least for now, it never happened. So, so it lives between hypothetical and emotive yeah. in a way, yeah, rather exactly. than actual. It's yeah. theory and emotion, really. That, that's what federalism, and although mm -hmm. I, I know I've heard of people who have new uh, a federalist proposal, but I mean, I know that they've worked on it, but I, I don't really see this as, uh, I'm sure they are very serious. And, and of course I respect their seriousness, but I've never seen this materialize. And I don't see how today it's gonna materialize because again, we need a form of governance for our context today. I don't see how federalism answer the, the economic crisis? What is the, the solution to the economic crisis? And I don't see how weakening, again, central government is going to um, also kind of uh, um, allow us to, to, to overcome the political crisis, right? So to me today, I don't see how federalism work, works. And if, if I have any, if I have two cents on the issue, it would also be that you'd have to at least have the fundamentals of agency and sovereignty first yeah. before you can go yeah. down that road anyway. Yeah. You can't find a federalist solution where we are right now, regardless. So I appreciate the way you're describing it. It's really, it's, it's an academic, if it exists in yeah. academia, it's somewhere between hypothetical and emotional. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm, I have never asked you about your dissertation and I know you just sort of, sort of just put it behind you, but I'm, the, the years intrigue me. Mm. We've, we've never talked about it, but uh, when I think of those seven years, 1975 to 82, there's one man that I think of who's Khalil Hawi, poet and an academic, a Ras Beiruti, who, I mean, he, I think he embraces all political identities in those seven years. I think he, at some point, he was a Syrian nationalist. He was a Lebanese nationalist, a PLO supporter at some point. And then he's on his balcony the day of the Israeli invasion of Beirut in June, 1982, and commits suicide. And to me, that story has always, it, it, it touched me in a way. I, I really uh, sense that that's what you lose first and foremost when political violence encompasses your world. You lose, the, you lose your intelligentsia. You lose your academics. You lose your poets. You lose your artists. They, they, they fade. And at times, they kill themselves. And I'm, I'm curious from your side why, why those seven years were important at least in terms of your dissertation? And does he even factor into the dissertation at any point? Or is he just sort of unrelated to that, that stretch of time? So unfortunately not, although I've heard of him, but he's not a, a figure in my PhD because you mm. I mean, so the PhD at first was this project of offering an intellectual history of the civil war, right? So because the military and political aspect 
were kind of already explored, I wanted to, to kind of reveal or shine a light on those ideologies, concept ideas that flourished out of the war. So to me, mm-hmm. what I have a, an opposite stance on what you said on the fact that uh, intellectual life dies during the war. Obviously it's true for the fact that political violence destroy institutions, right? Or destroy those space where intellectual artists can go and express themselves and manifest themselves. But at the same time, because political violence and war especially uh, um, broadened the horizon of what is previously thinkable or possible because it creates mm-hmm. so much rupture, right? Because it creates so much fertile ground for, for, for things. There are new ideologies that also uh, um, um, kind of uh, emerge and, and and so my 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 first project was to compare leftist and rightist thought uh, during the during the war right but then i was obviously everything happened after 2019 i lost yeah. a lot of time not doing on the phd and so i had to to pick one side and and my supervisor told me that i should maybe just aim for now to write the intellectual history of one side and then maybe later combine both. So I've focused on right-wing intellectuals because- Oh, oh so it's only yeah. on right-wing in the seven yeah. years. Okay, yeah. I see, yes. And I've chosen this because you'll find a lot of work on leftist intellectuals in the Arab world, right? Mm. Because that's kind of, uh, um, and that's something that I always say because historians and scholars tend to want to write on the, the people they like, or at least they want to put a distance between themselves and the others, the people they detest, right? Everyone wants to write ab- about the Lebanese left or the Arab left because it's the honorable, uh, um, right? Uh, and also lends itself thought. better to academia, I think. There's there's literature and texture there that you can maybe use to theorize better than... Sort well, there's the- much... So yeah, there's much contribution. There's much yeah. scholarship on the left, on the leftist current. Yeah. But the point is that if everyone writes on this, then there's not much contribution, right? And so I had to look at the the, the bad guys, right? <laughs> the right fanatic. Let me find Etienne yeah. Saer on Google. See exactly. if we- <laughs> so, but the point is that no one has ever written on... Uh, I focused on them. And, and what I show is that actually the war was a fertile ground for ideological experiments, whether mm. federalism... Mm. Uh, whether other tropes, I'm not going to divulge everything because I want people to buy the book. But uh, yes, to me is that on the contrary, the war created new contexts where daring ideas could be developed, right? You yeah. know, this reminds me of a book that I read. It's uh, Theodore Hanf. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, the, the title escapes me. It's something like Death of the State and Birth of the Nation. And that's the Lebanese Civil War. Yeah. And, and then within that, you have the state collapsing on itself but ideas are flourishing and yeah. then nationhood yeah. yeah so i guess yeah. that that lines up to that definitely book. yeah definitely yeah hmm. well yeah, because I, it was breakdown of the state then those groups those, those sub-state groups were in, in, inventive they got innovative right they 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 talk of different ways to get legitimacy to get power right obviously yeah, yeah. but the reason i i was a bit more bleak on the intelligentsia front, even though you've obviously done your dissertation on it, yeah. you would know better. But my reaction was more of um, knowing that this community, which Beirut once celebrated, yeah. and not just celebrated, it was a magnet for the region's yeah. writers and thinkers and poets and the like, they're not here. Yeah. Let alone the Lebanese are not here. Yeah. So that, I guess, was more of watching a one, one figure who I guess flirted between left and right-wing ideologies yeah give up on the city and kill himself yeah and that that sort of 
tragic ending to a very bright mind as the Israelis are entering Beirut, it stuck with me. Yeah. And I know it's nothing like that right now, but there is that kind of brain drain. Yeah, and at least that's in the, very true. In the it's creative, yeah. And it's a one-way, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and you also need to understand that just the Israeli invasion itself, especially the, the 1982, because it got to Beirut, that that's just a major, major dramatic event, right? And it could push people with this intelligence, people with this stamina to commit suicide because it was just the ultimate failure. It was the ultimate, just it's very, and the violence it caused. So this, this episode itself caused a lot of deaths compared to uh, other cycles of subconflicts within the war. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that it would happen, right? Because the circumstances were so intense, were so drastic. And so yeah. and it's, it's very, it, it's very, it's very sad, yeah. It's extremely sad. What is not sad is the gap that people like you are filling. Now, I'll say this from my side. Um, I think it takes a lot of patience and effort to try to teach Lebanese history post-1943 to an audience, whether they're Instagram users or wherever they are, however they're accessing your content. And it's not just you. I sense that there is a generation of Lebanese historians or historians in the making uh, who are fulfilling that chapter. It's not taught, it's ignored for all the reasons that we know, but it's accessible today. You can actually learn your history. And I think it's a nuanced take. I wouldn't go as far as saying revisionist, maybe that's too far, but it's more in offering at least some material that was not really that accessible before. You'd have to take a course at AUB or LAU or maybe San Joseph. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to learn the Civil yeah. War or for that matter, post-1943. And I don't even remember learning much until I went to university abroad. And that's when I started learning about Lebanese history. And it really wasn't until graduate school that I took keen interest in Lebanese yeah. history. But that's an effort you had to make and it cost money. Yeah. Now it's free. So... You're doing a fantastic job there. Thank uh, sto- you. I admire storytellers. I mean, Kamel Salibi was a was a great mind, but I, I was drawn to Samir Asir. And I can't imagine him in the Instagram world, but <laughs> it's 16 years ago, so time has passed. There are ways now to communicate, yeah. and you're doing it on your terms. Yeah, and I you. hope you don't stop doing it, even though the PhD is over. I hope you continue at least yeah. on the Leb Historian page. Thank so, you so much. Thank you. And I hope next time we speak, it's about your book. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I look forward to reading it and, and not seeing it on Instagram, actually reading it <laughs> the way books used to be read. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Roni. <laughs> Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.